0: Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan and today we are talking about the extraordinary American painter Alma Woodsey Thomas. My guests are Seth Feeman, Deputy Director for Art and Interpretation and Curator of Photography at the Chrysler Museum of Art and Jonathan Frederick Walls, Director of Curatorial Affairs and Curator of American Art at the Columbus Museum. Seth and Jonathan have co-curated a sweeping retrospective exhibition titled Alma W. Thomas, Everything is Beautiful, which is currently on view at the Chrysler Museum of Art and will travel from there to the Phillips Collection, followed by the Frist Art Museum, and finally it will go to the Columbus Museum. Seth and Jonathan have also co-edited the exhibition catalog, also titled Alma W. Thomas, Everything is Beautiful. And it is a really breathtaking book that showcases the artwork of Alma Thomas alongside a group of terrific essays that offer a range of perspectives on Thomas's life and art. Seth and Jonathan, thank you so much for your time.
1: Thanks for having us. It's great to be here.
2: We're just so pleased to be able to speak with you. Thank you.
0: You're very welcome. So many listeners will be familiar with Alma Thomas. She is hardly an unknown artist, but I would like to start with a brief summary of her biography by by one or both of you.
1: Sure, I can I can start off, but Jonathan, feel free to jump in if I skip over something or there's more to say. Uh, and I think with Thomas, one thing that we've learned is that there's there's always more to say. Uh, she's just an endlessly fascinating artist, and person, and creative individual. So the way that I typically talk about Alma Thomas is that she lived a lifetime of firsts. Um, She was the eldest of four sisters when she was born in uh, Georgia in 1891. Uh, She was the first graduate in fine art from Howard University in 1924, uh, where she was possibly the first African-American woman to earn such a degree. She went on to become the founding vice president of Barnett Aden Gallery, which was the first private art gallery in Washington DC to exhibit works works by racially diverse artists. And that was in 1943. Um, she has her first solo exhibition at DuPont Theater Art Gallery in 1960, which sells out. Uh, a few years later in 1966, she receives her first, her first retrospective at Howard University, which is just six years after she retires from a 35 year career of teaching at Shaw Junior High School. Um, at 1972, and this is probably what she's most well known for, uh, when she's 81 years old, she becomes the first Black woman to have a solo exhibition at the Whitney Museum of American Art. Um, she passes in 1978, and attention wanes a little bit, uh, but famously during the Obama administration, uh, the Obamas acquire her work for the White House Association, uh, making her the first African American woman to be added to the collection. Um, so really, those are you know they're just a few of the highlights of her life's accomplishments, uh, and they really span uh, many many decades of achievements in a variety of creative areas. Um, what Jonathan and I have tried to do in our project here, in both the book and the exhibition. It's kind of stitched through all of those first with the threads of her creative interests and really um, the singular thing that defines them is a lifelong pursuit of beauty Um, she's captivated by the notion of beauty and searches for it in everything she does from gardening to dress to music appreciation to puppetry to teaching and we wanted to show that uh, that the variety of creative areas in which she was um, uh, pursuing beauty in all of its forms. Jonathan, anything to add to that? It's a um, no,
2: that's you're so eloquent. That's amazing. Uh,
0: and her work is absolutely beautiful. And as you suggested, spans a, a variety of media. Although I think for those who aren't very familiar with her, she's most frequently associated with the Washington, Washington Color School painters. Although she belonged to a slightly different generation than most of them. Um, can you tell us what, what do you think is gained from looking at Thomas and her art in the context of Washington Color School and what's lost or um, incongruous about that connection?
1: Yeah, you know, I think, um, Jonathan, I'll jump in, but again, feel free to free to interrupt if you wanna add. Um, I, I think that there is quite a bit that's lost and there's quite a bit gained by the association um, You know her work is oftentimes um, associated with the washington color school because of geography Uh, she is in that part of the world making work at the same time as the washington color school artists are making their work Uh, and she is similarly painting in circles and stripes Uh, that is a fair reason to show her work alongside of them Uh, but it, it doesn't really give um I think appropriate attention to the way that she's handling her paint. And one of the nice things about having both um, color school artists and her work on view at the Chrysler right now and on the rest of the tour and illustrated in the catalog is that you can really compare and contrast the handling of paint, which for Thomas was a kind of building up of layers of um, palpable paint. And it seems very far away when you see it in real life from the kind of saturating and soaking that the color school painters were doing. Um, That said, uh, there is uh, value to understanding how Thomas operated in Washington DC and the relationships that she had between um, these artists uh, and many, many other artists. And one of the things that Jonathan and I really wanted to advocate for in this project was just how central Thomas was to of uh, the artistic worlds in Washington and beyond for so long. I think she's she's oftentimes mischaracterized as a late blooming artist who's following on the heels of other artists. And sometimes the association with Washington Color School does that. It sort of adds her to a group, but it it ignores the fact that for decades beforehand, she was an active and important player in several art scenes in Washington, DC with other artists looking at her work just as often as uh, she was looking at theirs.
2: I'll add that um, in terms of the exhibition itself, um, which also translates in a way to the catalog is how importantly we felt about including actual work by her peers in the exhibition, like previous, previous exhibitions really just referenced um, the other artists in her orbit with kind of sidebar illustrations or or comparative figures in, in essays. And we felt that by bringing both groups of material together, we would really demonstrate in real time and real space how Thomas could meet those artists that are seemingly better known, um, Kenneth Noland, Morris Lewis, Jean Davis, but she could meet them toe to toe and hold her own against them. Um, And the way we dealt with that in the catalog is to give both um, groups of material full pages rather than um, just kind of comparative illustrations and essays.
1: Yeah, I think Jonathan, when we were, when we were doing the interpretive materials for the exhibition, and it shows up in the catalog as well, Um, made sure that we included this story as well from Sam Gilliam about um, an opening for Kenneth Nolan. So this is really focusing on the Washington Color School artists. Um, And the way Gilliam tells the story is that Nolan, he like drops everything and runs over to see Alma Thomas and say hello to her. Uh, and Sam Gilliam was sort of like, well, what's going on? Uh, what's this all about? And he was reminded that in the early days when, when Noland and um, others from the color school are getting started, they were going to places like Barnett Aden and uh, meeting Thomas, who was one of the directors there, one of the VPs there. Um, and they knew her through that context. They knew her because she was an established figure on the scene. And so Jonathan's point, uh, just to emphasize what he's saying, we we felt strongly that really putting these works in dialogue and showing the actual objects, both in scale, in the catalog and in real space in the exhibition was just vitally important to do.
0: Yeah, I think that story actually illustrates something that the, the book communicates really well, which is that it's not only the works in dialogue with each other, but she had strong relationships with, with all kinds of artists, and it really there really was an interpersonal connection there too, um, in addition to the the artistic resonances in the in the in the artworks.
2: I definitely think that was part of our project, whether we intuited it or articulated it to ourselves. But a really important theme and keyword during the research and development for us was network. We really wanted to show how connected she was and i think that's really important because i think it helps kind of explain how seemingly she's able to kind of you know the myth is she bursts onto the the scene out of the blue and really it it couldn't have happened otherwise in the sense that she needed all of those connections When you're an artist, those are the people who connect you with dealers, with buyers, with people who will write about your work. And it just was so apparent from the archive how connected she was, and not just within the African-American art community, but also in the white art community. She really crossed the color line very easily and was able to maintain friendships and relationships throughout Washington and really throughout the East Coast art world.
0: So let's talk about that bursting onto the art scene idea. I mean, Seth mentioned that she had a a more than three decades long career as a middle school teacher and took that very seriously. She was a very committed educator. Um, And when she retired in her 70s was able to devote herself full time to art in a way that um that she hadn't been able to do before that and you know this is in the 1960s um and she is no longer young and she was maybe in some ways a little bit culturally out of step with some of the things that were going on in the 60s and um, in particular I'm thinking with the black arts movement, but not entirely. I mean again, you mentioned she just she knows people in the art world she knows people in Washington generally. she has a strong connection to her church she knows people in the, in the world of education. Um, But I'm curious about what you both think about the ways that Thomas has moved with the culture of the sixties and what ways she sort of stood apart from that and not necessarily moved against it, but independently of it.
2: I think what's important to recognize, I like to say that she's kind of always out of step in a certain regard. I think through this project, it really hit me over the head that she returned to Howard University as an undergraduate when she was in her 30s. So she had already kind of been out in the world and working as a teacher and then, you know, had this experience of being in class with 18 and 19-year-olds. So she always kind of, I think, saw herself as out of step in that sense, but she never let it sort of dissuade her or discourage her. Um, in fact, she often talks about um, there's so many quotes and eyewitness accounts about how she loved hanging out with young people, that she thought old people were really boring. And she just wanted to know all of the new things and she knew that young people would be able to tell her about them. So she's really, um, she has an active interest in cultivating kind of a younger circle of friends around her. And I think in a way that helps keep her young at heart, which is really important in terms of her um, energy and, um, sort of stick in the studio. But I think the, the larger question you're asking really has to do with framework and how you're framing being in step or being not in step. For example, I think that in terms of the environmental movement, which really gets going in the 60s and 70s. She's completely in step with this. She is very much aware about what's going on in terms of Lady Bird Johnson's beautification efforts in Washington, kind of as a model city for other places across the country. But she's also um, very much aware of um, environmental activism that's happening and also very much... Um, a believer in this idea that it's nature that is something that unites all people. Um, she's very interested in this idea that the environment, whatever happens to the environment happens to us all. It's not sort of, we can't segregate, um, you know, weather events or um sort of environmental disasters like they all affect us and therefore everyone should really think about the environment and and um strive to be environmentally conscious in other ways culturally she's really out of step in the sense that and this is a really easy kind of comparison to make but she kind of comes of age artistically during the early part of the 20th century when the issues in the the African-American community are really about integrating <clears throat> and wanting to sort of join Western civilization. There's a lot of effort in terms of demonstrating that African-Americans have been making art as long as white Americans and that this is a conjoined history, it's not two separate histories. Um, And that's really different from what happens once the Black Power movement arises. And it becomes very real for her because there's a regime shift in the art department at Howard, where her two kind of heroes, James Herring, who recruited her into the department in the first place, he passes the torch to James Porter, who then um, dies in 1970. And so because across campus at Howard, students are clamoring for more Afrocentric courses, more African-American faculty, the art department um, realizes this in the sense that they hire One of the chief architects of the Black Arts Movement, who is Jeff Donaldson. And so suddenly the department is very interested in Black self determination, images um, that are figural, images that convey a very clear message. And this sort of, in a sense, puts her in conflict with those in the Black Arts Movement because there are. Uh, members of the Black arts movement, the Black power movement, who are going around saying that if you're painting abstraction, that's based in Europe, that's based in traditions that have nothing to do with Africa. And so therefore, if you're not with us, you're against us. And it really rankles artists like Alma Thomas, Kenneth Victor Young, and Sam Gilliam who feel strongly that they should be pursuing abstraction. But the discourse is such that it seems at the time that in fact because she's painting non-objectively that she's not contributing to the Black arts movement per se.
1: Yeah, that the only thing uh, that I'll add to that is that there's such, th- there's this strange moment when David Driscoll um, curates and puts on the road um, his monumental exhibition, Two Centuries of Black American Art, uh, which is ostensibly meant to end in 1950, as the two centuries go. And he includes a handful of contemporary examples, including Alma Thomas's work. and. Um, for Driscoll, it meant to kind of signal one of the future pathways uh, when the show was opened in nineteen seventy six, um, a kind of move towards abstraction or a deeper engagement with abstraction, perhaps, uh, as one mode for African American artists to pursue. Um, but it it seems like it comes at right at right at the time when uh, the Black Arts Movement and uh, affiliated movements are um hitting their stride as well, and it's um. It's interesting to put all of that in context and into that into that moment where, just as Jonathan puts it so well, Thomas remains oddly even when she is included in this major touring exhibition, she's oddly a little bit out of step uh, with some of the um, uh, main movements that are happening at the time.
2: I think it's also really telling that at the end of her life, so this is in the '70s when the Black Arts Movement is really flourishing. She tells an interviewer, well, the interviewer asks her, do you think of yourself as a Black artist? It's a very pointed question. And Thomas does not hesitate, and she says, no, I do not. I think of myself as a painter, and I think of myself as an American. So I think that really just very plainly shows how she's holding herself in a way that is very different than someone in the black arts movement would characterize themselves
0: yeah she definitely had a um, uh, <clears throat> very uh, well-developed sense of of herself and I, is it your feeling that she meant for that to be an oppositional, Position. I mean, my, you know, the way I heard her talk about her art and the quotes that are included in the book was not so much in opposition, but just continually restating this idea that her goal was to, you know, achieve beauty in art. And this was how she was doing it. She wasn't trying to, um, you know, get in get in anyone else's way or say that her way of doing art was better than anyone else's, but that that her goal was beauty and that that was separate from any political goals.
2: I think Aruna D'Souza and her essay, really, that's kind of the conclusion that she comes to is that, you know, both Thomas and other African-American abstractionists and folks who were working under the umbrella of the Black arts movement really had the same goal, which is what you're saying is like, creating objects of beauty that communicate to a viewer. And no matter what the message is, um, that is something that they had in common. Um, And, you know, they were debating in a way what beauty actually meant, but it didn't mean that one was better. One definition was better than the other. I think that was really her tack was that she wasn't trying to claim that her path was the only path, but that there were many paths to beauty and this is the one that spoke to her. But it's also very apparent <laughs> in-
1: That's funny, I'm, I'm sitting here laughing to myself because I'm also <laughs> thinking about how um, at the same time, I, this is not exactly a contradiction of what Jonathan's saying, but it's, it's a little nuance, is that she was also very competitive too. So even while she had an expansive definition of beauty, um she also wanted to be better than other people at art. She wanted to be a better artist and she would say things about um you know when she saw Matisse's cutouts at MoMA she made a direct quotation in a painting called Watuzi in 1963 and when she painted it she said if he could do it I could do it. I wanted to do something better than him effectively. And we know from her response John and I were just emailing about this today. Um, When critics would write negatively about her work, she would just say, forget it. I'm going to just keep doing what I'm doing because what I'm doing is great. And that that real self-determination, I think, isn't something I would want us to mischaracterize because it's so important to her. Um, I think, as Jonathan was describing it before, her youthfulness is sort of embodied in this competitive spirit that she has.
0: And indeed, as you mentioned earlier, Seth, she was the the first African American woman to have a solo show at the Whitney. It was not just her own sense of her artwork's beauty; she was recognized at the time as being a significant artist. But there was some debate at the time about the politics of the museum's decision to select Thomas for the exhibition. Um, can you talk a little bit about the pressure that? major museums in New York City and elsewhere were under at the time to desegregate their exhibitions, to desegregate their collections, their staff, and how Alma Thomas's show figured into this.
1: Yeah, um, you know, again, Aruna D'Souza wrote this incredible essay for the catalog and uh, she covers a lot of this ground in that, in that essay uh, and there's an important context. Uh, and so the, the kind of broad overview is a little bit helpful um, Thomas's Whitney exhibition in 1972 opens on the heels of really years of protests that are happening in New York at various art venues. Um, it goes back several years, and it goes back at least to um, the Met's exhibition, Harlem on My Mind, from 1969. Uh, that, that show was met with protests over the exclusion of Black artists and the limited incorporation of input. From Black community advisors and staff. Um, the protests at the Met were met with some concessions by the Met, largely in the form of community outreach programs. Uh, and that uh, encouraged protesters to move on to additional sites, largely led by the Black Emergency Cultural Coalition, which was a very, um, very savvy when it came to how to leverage the media um, to help them achieve various goals of diversifying and really breaking the color barrier at various arts organizations. So they began to focus on the Whitney um, after or during a show on the 1930s, uh, a show that entirely excluded work by black artists. Um, It sort of erased them from the history of that decade. Um, And their protests opened the door to negotiations for things like um, uh, increased exhibition of work by black artists acquisition of work by black artists, the hiring of staff, uh, uh, black staff, a major show of black artists, contemporary black artists. Um, they basically issued a list of demands um, to the museum. And the museum responded by agreeing to um, start showing in a small gallery, the lobby gallery, a series of African-American artists, including figures like Al Loving, Melvin Edwards and Frank Bowling. Um, Alma Thomas was the first woman uh, among these African American artists to be shown. And so she gets this important recognition for her accomplishment. Even after the series of exhibitions begins, there's still criticism from the artists who had protested for the changes um, because it's a smaller space uh, and it's tucked away on the first floor. It's on the lobby, or off the lobby, uh, and it's away from the main exhibition spaces. So it feels like uh, to some, it feels like a continued segregated space, not, not full inclusion. Um, Alma Thomas does not see it that way. She, there are these incredible photographs of her attending the opening and she is thrilled to be there and uh, to have her works on view. And some of her most accomplished works are included in that exhibition, in fact, the installation of our exhibition um, at the the Chrysler's version of it, it'll be different at different locations. But at ours, uh, we open the show with a partial reinstallation of the Whitney show, because we really want to highlight these incredible works that that were shown in 1972. Um, But the the story um, is even more complicated than that. Um, uh, Jonathan and I found when we were looking through the Whitney archives that there were some correspondence between administrators, really the curator at the Whitney, and David Driscoll over, um, over Alma Thomas, about Alma Thomas. And uh, really, a lot of credit should be given to David Driscoll, who was at that time uh, curator of the director of the Fisk University Art Gallery. Uh, he'd given Thomas a show in 1971. And Really gave the curator at the Whitney the idea of showing Thomas's work and really kind of promoted her. Um, and when her work was shown, um, it was in large ways indebted to the work that Driscoll had done. And, and we're glad that uh, Aruna was able to include uh, that element in her in her account as well, because it's an important new wrinkle to that story.
0: And talking a little bit about the the paintings themselves, the paintings for which she's maybe best known there. These really exuberant, colorful stripes and circles, as was mentioned earlier. Um, Alma Thomas's understanding of color theory and her handling of color is just unbelievable. And Jonathan, you have a piece in the book um, that looks beyond this, you know, very obvious centrality of color to her work and discusses the importance of motion um, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that what what kinds of motion you're implying in that idea and what their relationships are to her use of color.
2: I think that color as you state is is a really obvious entry point into the work and i i I do not disagree at all I think it's it if if that's what gets you to look at the paintings, then that's a very good reason. I guess as I was working on the show that I realized it almost becomes like an overemphasis to a certain degree. And I, I just wanted to counter this popularized version of that reduces her work, which is incredibly complex and nuanced. It reduces it just to color because I think there are so many other interesting things that are happening. And I was really inspired, actually, by a previous essay on Thomas that Seth had published where he discussed how fluidly Thomas moves around Washington, D.C., even though it's still a segregated city during much of her lifetime that she crosses the color line without blinking and in fact there's this amazing story about when her family first moves to washington just several months after in 1908 she as a teenager goes to the corcoran which doesn't doesn't desegregate for decades but she goes and she demands to be admitted and she's so convincing that the guards let her go in as a black young lady. And I think that kind of disregard is just such a key element of who she is. And it really has so much to do with crossing and kind of, um, different, ways of moving that Seth's essay inspired me to look more closely at. Um, I think that she was very aware, knowing how much color theory she had studied, that there was an optical effect created by color, especially when you place one hue next to its complement, there's this vibration that happens. Um, But I think more than that, motion for her was rooted in an ethics of beauty that was incredibly important to her. <clears throat> it had very much to do with modernism and that by marrying color and motion, in essence, she was creating a bridge for her ideas about truth and beauty, and using color to move those ideas from her through her experience into a work of art and then onto the viewer. So motion for her was um incredibly important, and I think it's really rooted in this aesthetic stance that is very much tied to her tie um, her time at Howard and her understanding of what W.E.B. Du Bois was, was advocating for in the early 20th century.
0: You have one very brief line in the essay that I have to say made me go and look at all of the paintings in the plate section again. And I looked at them differently. You say that, um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of her paintings are made up of these dashed lines of color and you envision them in one line as footsteps. And so I went back and looked at these paintings again and thought, well, okay, if they're footsteps, you know, what, what direction are they going? Where, where are we walking here? And uh, it was a really delightful way to, to relook at the paintings. I
2: think that raises a really interesting point in terms of the physical nature of her objects. And this was corroborated by the technical study that the amazing conservators and art historians we worked with at the Smithsonian have put together and their findings are being published in a way that a general reader can understand them in the book for the first time. We're really thrilled to be able to include that. What they found was that, you know, she does paint with the canvas maybe one way and then turn it upside down because they found drips that you know the painting is hung in a portrait format but the drip is 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 going upwards right so she very much thought in terms of motion about the way her objects moved in the world as well and i think that really has a lot to do with her love of theater and her involvement with theater. I just think theater is such a rich vein for understanding not just Thomas as a person, but I think her work in the studio as well. I think it it really comes out when as you say you start really closely looking at at the the way that she's made the surfaces but to go back to the motion idea and kind of tracking in which direction are we going in just to mention that through this project i've come up with about 10 objects where she's either double signed them or published them in one direction and turned them another so motion like even came out in her work in the way that she showed them and displayed them even more than the way that she's creating the imagery itself.
0: What a fantastic thing to discover. Well, I I only have one more question today. um, And that, you know, it's a little counterintuitive maybe given that we're talking about an art exhibition um, and talking about an artist, but you're both very careful not to lose the thread of education throughout Thomas's life, um, you know, starting from the importance on education that was present in her family from the time she was a kid. And even before that, uh, before she was alive through her um, career as a teacher. And so I wonder um, if Seth, you would talk a little bit about the importance of education and Um, how that really um, broadens and and amplifies our understanding of her as a person and as an artist.
1: Yeah, you you know, I think understanding her as a painter becomes infinitely richer if you also understand her as a teacher. And uh, Jonathan and I sort of set out early on to dispel several myths about Thomas. And one of them, a special pet peeve of mine, is that She's oftentimes described as a teacher who then retires and becomes a painter. And um, that does a disservice not only to her art career, which extends for decades while she is teaching for longer than her 35 year career at Shaw Junior High School, she's actively learning and showing her work. It also ignores the fact that she continues teaching after she retires from uh, from the formal classroom by volunteering at her church and at community organizations. But I think the the thing that's most frustrating about that division is that it suggests that they're somehow diametrically opposed, that one can't coexist with the other, or that if they did, they're in separate realms. And one of the things that Jonathan and I went to great lengths to show in this project overall is that these dividing lines between the world of art and the world of everything else were not so cut and dried for Thomas, And that's especially true in the realm of education, where um, we know that her teaching drew on curatorial elements. She was teaching her students to appreciate art and make art and see art and talk about mobility. She was asking her students to move throughout a segregated city to explore the art centers around the city. Um, She was really active in that arena while also active as a painter. And we wanted that conversation to be uh, very much, very much in place. Um, I hope that people will see when they're studying Thomas how dynamic of a teacher she was. Um, her curriculum included um, uh, having the students um, curate exhibitions or show their work in public settings, uh, making drawings, um, uh, thinking about gardening in different ways. I think most illuminating, and, and here Jonathan deserves the credit for extracting this from the archive, but she she goes to Columbia Teachers College uh, in the summers while she is teaching at Shaw Junior High School, and she writes a master's thesis on marionettes, and marionettes are a huge part of her life for several decades, um, and she, she talks about them in her dissertation or her thesis as a correlating activity, and what that means is that She's using the creation and performance of uh, the design creation and performance of marionettes as a way of drawing together various disciplines, various curricula that she is trying to teach the students. So they learn history when they're researching the plays. They learn language art when they're writing plays. They learn shop when they're creating the marionettes. They learn color theory when they're thinking about how to design the sets. They're learning, in some cases, they're learning electronics when they're electrifying the sets that they're using. Uh, the list goes on and on. And sort of along the way of this hands-on activity, the students are uh, not only learning these activities, but ultimately participating in their community. And that's where, that's where the connection really happens, is that uh, they're presenting these demonstrations of their education and their new knowledge by sharing it with audiences not only at the school, but even beyond. And that's where I think at the heart of it, Thomas's pursuit of beauty shows up. Um, the This pursuit of beauty that stitches together all of her creative interests really takes its form, not only in the paintings, but in the community that she creates through them. And I hope if, if anything, when people see the show and read the catalog, they'll, they'll land on that.
0: I have no doubt but that they will. It's an inspired presentation, uh, both the book and the exhibition of a really inspiring person. Thank you both for bringing them into the world. Thank you for making the time to talk to me today about Alma Thomas. Thank you, great to talk to you. I hope that everyone listening has a chance to see the exhibition as it travels from Norfolk, Virginia, where it is now, to Washington, D.C., to Nashville, Tennessee, to Columbus, Georgia, Um, whether or not you can, the book, Alma W. Thomas, Everything is Beautiful, is available wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.